Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This show is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today we have Jean on with us from the ALS community, um, and she is going to share her story with us. Um, and you know, share how she advocates um, for the for ALS in her family and ALS in the community. Um, you know, and just making quality of life better and and um, research and everything else, uh, just like we do in the HD community. So, Jean, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Lauren. I'm so excited to, to chat more with you. I've listened to your show uh, a few episodes, and I really appreciate your content, and I, I love the work that you get up to with Steph and other HD activists. So, so glad to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah, you know, I love hearing. Um, so we actually met on, on Twitter, um, but I love hearing from other people because, you know, we're all pretty much fighting uh the same type of stuff in our communities, and so um, to to have somebody else in a different community who is um, dealing with the same stuff is pretty cool. Um, not cool in that I, I want you to be dealing with it, just that <laughs> you know you could relate. So, but Jean, I'm going to have you share your story really quick and um, share how ALS affects you. Sure. Uh, let me let me jump into that. So um, ALS entered my understanding in my life um, when I was six years old, and my grandmother became very ill. And you know, um, I remember my parents and I. We lived very close to my grandparents, and uh, you know, my grandmother started to have trouble walking, and my. Uh, parents actually remodeled their our, our home to provide a bathroom on the first floor um, driven by my grandmother's need for a bathroom that wasn't up so many stairs um, so this was you know something I, I remember uh, I also distinctly remember as her disease progressed her beginning to be in a motorized wheelchair which uh, you know in 1990 or so when this was uh, you know they, they were very big and um, I remember being kind of scared of it. So, you know, that's not a, a a nice memory that I remember being scared of my grandmother a bit <laughs> uh, because she was in this big contraption. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a feeling that I, that I remember. And then she, she died not too, too long after that. Um, so that was my first experience with it. And, of course, I didn't get to know, you know, her very well. Uh, because she died when I was so young. Um, but the next way that ALS really touched my life uh, was 
over the ensuing years, my mother uh, would be very worried about developing ALS and would kind of talk about it a lot, especially as she um, got closer to 50 and, and 60 and closer to the age my grandmother was when she developed uh, ALS. And, um, you know, it didn't mean much to me when I was very young, but, you know, as I started to get older and started to use the internet and stuff like that, I, you know, I would, you know, say to her even and say to myself, like, well, you know, ALS is very rare, you know, uh, what are the odds that you would get it too? Uh, it seems outlandish a little bit. Um, what I didn't know at the time was that my great-grandfather died of ALS, um, and, you know, he died in 1970, well before I was born. So, you know, that was just a fact that was not in my life. Um, and also, I had my grandmother's brother, so my mom's uncle, apparently uh, became, uh, had, had cognitive difficulties later in life. So um, that was also something I didn't really realize. So um, uh, that was our relationship with ALS at that point. My mom talking about how she was worried about it and uh, us just realizing it was pretty rare um, and a terrible disease, of course, but not something that was super relevant to my life, I felt. Um, and then my mom actually started developing difficulty walking um, that she attributed to arthritis. And this was 2016 around when I got married, actually, and uh, the location for my wedding, Lake Chalet in Oakland, California, had a series of steps uh, from the restaurant to the dock where the wedding was, and my mother was very worried about traversing those steps, and indeed, it was a little funny. Uh, I had both my parents walk me down the, the aisle, and uh, my mom kind of stepped and uh, made me trip a little bit when <laughs> I was getting married because she was having a little bit of trouble walking, and she stepped on my uh, dress. So, um, but, you know, she seemed in good health otherwise, just a little trouble walking. Uh, a few months after that, she fell at work and got really worried um, and, you know, started using a walker and just started having real trouble walking. And um, she had talked about being worried about ALS for a long time, but her primary care physician never really did anything with that with her. Um it just, you know, heard her concerns and, you know, that was whatever. He didn't refer to a neurologist or anything until she started really having trouble walking. And, you know, one sad detail of this is that her big toe started going up and I've since learned that that's the Babinski reflex and it's actually a sign of upper motor neuron dysfunction and it's very indicative of ALS. If you have that going on and you have weakness, that is pretty much definitely ALS because that shows both the upper and lower motor neurons just being dysfunctional. Uh, but anyway, so uh, she really thought that maybe it was her shoes that were causing her difficulty to walk, and she bought just like dozens of pairs of sneakers, uh, always hoping that the, the next pair she bought would uh, allow her to walk better. And of course, that, that was never the case. So finally, her primary care physician, you know, she had these uh, trouble walking. She had uh, this Babinski reflex, and he referred her to a neurologist uh, to see about ALS. So I was not in that meeting, but uh, I've heard it reported since that 
you know, my mother pounded her hand on the table and said, this is ALS. My grandmother, my mother and my grandfather both died of this. And this is what it looks like. But the neurologist, despite, you know, seeing that she did have damage to the nerves in her feet, uh, refused to diagnose it. Diagnose it. And a diagnosed her with peripheral neuropathy, unexplained. And also telling she did not order genetic testing that at that point in 2017 was very available for ALS. Um, instead, she ordered her to do physical therapy. My mother underwent the physical therapy and was, uh, you know, very working hard at it. But, of course, she wasn't getting better. Some consternation among her uh, practitioners that um, she wasn't, you know, something was wrong further. But still, she kept on going. Ultimately, she uh, broke her hip in her house and broke her hip and again you know they, they put you in uh, rehab after you have hip surgery and the surgeon was very upset with her he accused her of not doing her exercises because all of his patients re- recover the ability to walk not not soon after their um, not long after their surgery and my mother couldn't and then if, then her hand stopped working properly um, so she uh, finally got referred back to a neurologist, and finally she got an ALS diagnosis 10 months after she presented it to a neurologist at first and, and well after she really had pretty clear symptoms of uh, motor dysfunction. Um, I remember I was in California when she got diagnosed, and she called me, and I was actually on a stretcher road that has poor cell phone reception, but I heard it. I knew she was going to see the neurologist and I knew, you know, wanted to be there for her. Didn't feel like I could, um, didn't feel like I could hang up and say, Oh, let me call you back. <laughs> so I just tried to brace the hope that the connection stayed. And my mother told me she had ALS. And she also said in, in, the, in a voice that was the saddest voice that I ever heard, uh, I just, uh, this is what she was saying to me. I just remember my mother being in a Hoyer lift over a commode and my father saying, look, she smiled as he wiped drool from her mouth. And, you know, I don't want to experience that. And, um, you know, I had nothing to say to her because, you know, the little bit I did know about it, but there wasn't much to do. With this disease, um, so she uh, finally got sent to an ALS specialist at Columbia University, where they, you know, seen her family history, of course, ordered genetic testing, and they discovered the C9 or 72 gene expansion. Um, I kind of realized what the implications might be for me and my siblings uh, upon hearing that, but. I was very worried about upsetting my mother, so I um, did not talk about it or dwell on it while she was alive uh, because I did not want her to worry about us while she was dealing with us. Um, I'm going to stop you really quick because I'm just curious. Um, So what what risk risk did you have of um, getting it? So it's the same as Huntington's in terms of uh, autosomal dominance. So you just need one uh, affected gene. Um, 
where it gets a little more complicated and the science is not clear on this because this gene in, in question, C9R72, repeat expansion, was not discovered until 2011. So a lot of the science is still in its infancy on it. Um, but uh, it's definitely um, age dependent, uh, but unlike Huntington's, which has, a, my understanding, a very narrow window of um, activation, uh, C9 has basically from the 20s to very old age that it might present uh, with a median age of onset of 58. Um, my uh, mother, grandmother, and great-grandfather all were diagnosed in their latter 60s, and they all died by 70. Um, so that's a little bit later of a disease, and, you know, that's terrible and a tragedy, but if I was assured that it was only onset in the late 60s, you know, that would be one, you know, that, that, that would be one thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. But uh, the science apparently says that there's no relation between family members' age and onset, and that it can't be reliably predicted. Uh, hmm. My aunt, uh, soon after my mom passed away, uh, was diagnosed with ALS in her late 50s. Um, so there's there's definitely a, a variability there. So it's hard to, to draw conclusions for any one person. And, and plenty of people do get diagnosed in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, also, what's interesting is that uh, apparently psychiatric uh, disorders are very common. Um, in uh, canine carrier's life well, well before any more obvious uh, motor neuron disease. And I, I should say, um, it, it is the most common genetic cause of ALS, that it is also the most common genetic cause of frontal temporal dementia, which is a... Really? Uh, mm -hmm, which is a, a dementia that uh, is marked by a few different things. You know, what ties them all together is that the frontal lobe is impacted. Right. Um, and the most common is behavioral variant, frontal temporal dementia, which basically people start acting like toddlers on, in some sense. You know, they, they lose uh, empathy. They lose uh, inhibition. They often have oral fixations. Uh, or, or, or sweets obsession or alcohol obsession. And, uh, you know, they can get into some really, you know, bizarre behaviors. Um, so that's, uh, that's FTD. Um, and often people have uh, both uh, the ALS with the motor nerves, uh, neurons and the FTD symptoms. So, um, so regarding penetrance, uh, which is like how it would, anyone's odds of developing it, um, they don't. They say you can't predict if it's ALS or FTD, and they can't predict age of onset. Um, median age of onset is 58. Uh, they're the only peer-reviewed paper that came out about this was in 2017, and it said it was 100% penetrant by 83. Obviously, people can die of other things before 83. 
So uh, that's one way it's not fully penetrant. Um, a more recent paper has come out that says uh, it's more like 90% by 83. So that, you know, there, there is a chance of living to old age without um, developing it. Um, other people point out that uh, apparently uh, in ALS, there's many people who test positive for, for C9, um, about up to 8% of sporadic uh, ALS and STD cases um, who don't report any family history. So in my family, there was a clear family history, but uh, mm -hmm. apparently there's, there's people who get diagnosed with ALS, do genetic testing, and they report they don't. They know no one who got ALS or FTD in their family, and they come up with a C9 mutation. So people say, well, it must be a lower penetrance than that if there's all these people who have it and don't have a family history. Um, so it's a little unsettled. But uh, I could very easily see there might be some situations where there's families with a high penetrance because of maybe some other genetic background, uh, like my family or many others that I'm aware of. Uh, versus the families where so far only one person has been impacted. Um, right. The the other angle here that hasn't been researched that I really think should be is do people who escape a, a full diagnosis of ALS or STD uh, late in life, do they still have some form of deficit in cognition um, or motor skills that um, – you know, may, maybe doesn't rise to a full diagnosis. So I really think that should be looked into. Um, yeah. So anyway, so that's uh, that's a bit with my family. My mother died uh, very quickly after she was finally diagnosed, about 18 months. Um, she became fully paralyzed. Uh, she uh, never got use of, you know, you might and hear of ALS patients using eye gaze technology. She never had, had patience or, or inclination to learn how to do it. You know, we had a system, but she uh, never learned how to do it. And, and I think she might have had cognitive involvement that, you know, fostered a great deal of apathy, um, which is one of the cognitive symptoms they talk about. So um, that was, uh, of course, a big tragedy. And, uh, you know, I did feel very blessed to be a caregiver for her. Um, I did live in California, but I spent about three months over the course of the 18 months um, back home with her and staying with her in her apartment with my dad and, and helping me take care of her. So um, I took a lot of joy in, in providing that for her uh, as hard as it was. Um, yeah. So um, I... Um, decided after my mom passed away to participate in research at Columbia University where my mom was seen. And um, I did that, you know, and I learned a bit more about C9. You know, I, I learned more about um, ALS. And I took tentative steps joining some Facebook communities for familial ALS. And, and just so, you know, you know, ALS is mostly sporadic in that there's no clear family history. Um, familial ALS, where it's clearly passed down, is about 10% of cases. And then a further 10% of sporadic 
patients have a mutation like C9. Uh, so it's more like 20% have a genetic cause versus 80%. There's, there's no clear reason why they've developed it. Um, so uh, I uh, got on these Facebook groups finally after being a little scared of it because I was worried about genetic discrimination. I was like, is somebody going to find out if I get on this Facebook group? <laughs> Which is a little paranoid, but, you know, it's certainly something that many people in my family worry about. Um, and on the Facebook group, um, an activist, uh, with C9, uh, named Daniel Barvin, who is a real inspiration, uh, made a post about, um, getting a, together a group or, you know, creating some kind of more formal organization to advance the, um, interest, awareness, and support for the familial ALS community. And I thought that was a great idea. So me and Daniel and some others uh, came together and with the help of IMALS, uh, created the very first advocacy group for familial ALS specifically, um, the familial ALS team at IMALS. Which um, is a super, so that, I love the website, by the way. I just wanted to say that really quick. I really love your website. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, you know, that's all INALS, you know. <laughs> They're a very well-structured uh, organization that, that does a web flawlessly, so that's really great. And uh, we're just one, te- one part of that team. Um, but um, we've been going for a few years now. Um, you know, when we started, it was we we knew that there wasn't any avenue of support or any way for people to talk about their feelings about being in a familial ALS family. And we knew that was something we wanted to address. We wanted to get some more awareness about it out there. Um, like with my mom, she was very anxious about this her most of her adult life, but she didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. Um, so I don't want anyone to have to go through that alone again. So we, we have created a monthly support group that meets, um, you know, pretty much everyone who is uh, impacted by familial ALS who jumps on our calls or, or our support group. They all say how amazing it feels to speak to others who are in the same position. Um, and that must be a way that many people in the Huntington's community feel as well uh, when you meet others who are impacted Absolutely. Um, it, you know, and this, it all just really, your whole story touches my heart um, because, you know, for for you guys, you're in that rare 20%. Um, and I can imagine, um, even though I'm sure that you guys found support through through other groups, it's different when you have a genetic cause to something um, and you're following this path, and, and like I wish that I could have years ago said, you know what, come and hang out with the Huntington's group. We'll understand, you know, better than probably most what you're going through. Um, oh, and I, I have just, to say, actually, one one inspiration for our group was the Huntington's Youth Organization. Daniel stumbled upon yes. it and talked to some people there and was like, how come we don't have this? <laughs> mm-hmm. Love them. Um so Matt, who started that, 
absolutely amazing. BJ was part of that as well. Um, some really good people were part of starting that up, and it has become a really great resource, um, you know, for the HD community. So I'm really glad that you guys got use out of it too. Um, you know, that's part of a neurodegenerative disease. kind of have to work together in, in a lot of aspects for information purposes and, and support. We just don't have it like other um, disease communities do. Yeah, preach. That is, like, so, so true. And I am so excited to have, you know, uh, connected with Seth and BJ and others and you and the Huntington community and to see where we can, you know, partner together to really um, make a, a collective difference. You know, I did want to say, so we started out with these kind of, like, goals of um, support and awareness. You know, we also kind of knew that genetic discrimination was a big problem and some other stuff. But um, more recently, it's become clear to us that we really need to ensure that uh, people in our position, you know, carriers of these genes who are experiencing pre-symptomatic disease are included in clinical trials for intervention. Amen. Say it again. And I know that, <laughs> yes, I know that's a big thing uh, for many in the Huntington space as well. And it really just defies logic that there's these diseases that are um, to date untreatable and uh, incurable. And there's people that we can see the disease has started in, but is not yet reflected in uh, obvious symptoms. Why would we feed, you know, 10, 15 years uh, to a disease that's incurable. Why would we not try to cure it immediately <laughs> when we can see it? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and you brought up a really great point, and the whole reason that Seth and BJ and I, you know, have have made such a push for it in um, the HD community. But talking about that and, and the fact that it took us over a decade, I was one of the first who helped with advocating in D.C. for the HD Parity Act and, and basically having the same, one, changing the criteria with SSA, but also waiving that two-year waiting period that the ALS community was able to get waived. And it took us over a decade for them to even acknowledge one portion, like really help us with one portion of the bill. Um, and... I mean, there's no doubt about HD. If you test positive for the disease, you're going to get it. Um, and so it's just crazy that, that it, it's taken as long as it has, and they never address both sides of the bill. Um, so it's still a work in progress, even, you know, 15 years later. Um, these are things that we should not still have to be fighting for. Genetic discrimination is not something that should still be happening in our society, um, and it's ridiculous. And I have a lot of things I could say about it. But um, clinical trials—you're absolutely right. We are—we are the best time possible for research and technology, and we're not including the people who are literally like right on the cusp of getting it but we have the ability to go ahead and get them into trials and get more information from that than somebody who's already symptomatic 
and may not be able to participate as well. There's just so many, you know, uh, thoughts that I have on this, but I am, it's crazy that you guys experience that too, right? Like you guys, your, your community is having to fight because you're trying to rewrite the ALS story. Um, and you guys are actively doing what we are actively trying to do as well. And it's, um, it's good to know that we're not alone um, in having to fight these battles. Yeah, I, again, like you said earlier, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that anyone has to deal with this, but I'm very glad to be in a community of people who are, uh, you know, just fighting for, for common sense. And, you know, one thing that I started saying is um, why is my ticket to intervention, uh, why should my ticket to, to intervention be my permanent disability or uh, my cognition? You know, because that's mm-hmm. what they want now. They want you to be diagnosed with the disease first, um, yep. which is just bonkers to me. So, Well, I mean, because research points that the earlier you get something into the brain, the better it's going to work for the person with the neurodegenerative disease. So if you're waiting until those symptoms, the brain can only adapt so much and compensate so much um, at that point because there's already damage. So that just doesn't, yeah, it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. To yeah, you know, and you know, I've noticed something with this, and there's a bit of a dynamic here that I think is going on. For researchers, um, they never want to say something's ready. They always want more research. Uh, and that's great. That's why we love them, because they're, they're making double, triple, quadruple sure of stuff. Um, but, you know, so they're not going to push the envelope uh, when it comes to saying we should start these trials earlier because they, that's not their role. Their role is to produce the, the science and then other people push it. Now, another partner that might be expected to push it is pharma, drug developers. But you know mm-hmm. what? Drug developers don't want to antagonize the FDA because they need to play nice with the FDA to get their drugs approved. So um, they are not going to take the first step in anything, um, any, any new thing, because they don't want to jeopardize their uh, drug approval. The FDA is waiting on hearing from uh, researchers about what's appropriate. Uh, so the FDA is not going to be taking an aggressive step saying, hey, yeah, we should change how we do these trials. Um, so it's really incumbent on advocacy, on patient advocates to, to make this case. And unfortunately, the major uh, ALS advocacy organizations have totally not thought about this at all. We're not on their radar at all. Um, so it's really incumbent upon us to, to be, push this issue because the other people are not going to be the ones to push it, even though mm-hmm. it makes sense. At least right. that's something that, I, that I'm thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Um and you just made a really great point. You know, FDA is waiting to hear. Um, but what we found, at least, you know, recently in the past year, FDA is open to hearing from pre-symptomatic people. Uh, oh, yeah. About I don't know if it's been announced uh, what, uh, what, what's in the hopper for you guys, but I'm very excited about it. But if it hasn't been said, I won't, I won't say it. <laughs> it is not yet. 
so I will not release any information either. And I will wait for my my two uh, partners in crime um, to to release information. But, but, but um, it is something exciting is coming. That's all. I'll, exactly. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Something very exciting is coming. So. And I did I did uh, wiggle my way onto an NIH uh, strategic plan for for ALS. Um, mm-hmm. committee, so you know, I'm, ho- I'm hopeful to bring that perspective. I will say it, it was a little telling, you know, um, so like I said, C9 covers both ALS and FTD, and recently there was an FTD strategic plan from the uh, NIH, you know, uh, worked on by many esteemed people in the FTD community and um, researchers and stuff. And they released their draft findings and had a public hearing to talk about it. And I attended the hearing. I read the draft points and over, you know, a pretty thorough eight or nine pages of, you know, many single space points, <laughs> there was not one word about prevention in those at risk. And I made that point and the chair actually told me I was wrong. He said, no, it's in there. You just didn't see it. We'll try to make it more obvious in the final recommendation. So, people like you don't miss it or something. And then um, sure enough, a few days later, the NIH gets back to me and says, "Uh, you were right. It wasn't there. We don't know what happened. (laughs) Somebody cut it. Wow. And, um, you know, I'm sure they intended for it to be there, I guess. But, you know, why was it cut? Uh, And it just signals that we need to be in the room. Um, because other people are not going to look out for us. And you know what? You know, I'm not asking other people to look out for me uh, and our community. Uh, like people who are diagnosed with ALS right now, you know, they are fighting for their lives in a very, <laughs> very time-dependent manner, and I'm not asking them to, to, to accommodate me. Uh, I just need it to be understood that those of us who are at risk have some unique uh, needs and unique perspectives, and we should be consulted. So, absolutely. So, with you being at risk, um, did you? You're just at risk. You haven't gotten tested for the gene yourself. Oh no, I have. I, I have. You have. The, uh, I, I use at risk because it covers both those who have tested and know they have it, and people who haven't tested. Also, what's interesting in familial ALS, about 40% of families that have a clear inherited ALS thing going on, they have not identified the gene that causes it yet. So they cannot test. Got it. Got it. And what about, so what about your family? Your mom passed at what age? So my mom was diagnosed at 67, no, 68 and died at 70. Okay. Um, my grandmother, I believe, was diagnosed at 65 and died at 67. And my great-grandfather, I'm not sure when he was diagnosed, but he died when he was 70. Um, my aunt was diagnosed in her late 50s. I think she was 58 when she was diagnosed, but I could be a little bit wrong. But, um, again, they say in literature that there's no connection between um, – parents and children in terms of age of onset. Um, and there's, there's plenty of folks in the, in the C9 community who develop disease uh, 
tragically early. Um, but again, the the average age is fifty eight. Hmm. And obviously, I hear a, a kid in the background because I have two of my own. Um, so <laughs> I <laughs> I know the songs and TV shows. Um, so I'm guessing you have a child. Yes, we have one child, and you know I don't want to get too much into it necessarily, but uh, we do know that she doesn't carry the the C9 gene. Oh, congratulations. Um, um, that is so exciting. Yes. Um, you know, it, it it does, you know, bring into focus that you want to be there for, for your kids. Uh, how, how old are your kids? My daughter is uh, going to be four in May, and my son is two. He just turned two. And um, my daughter is negative for HD and my son is at risk. We didn't do testing for him. Um, But, you know, you're right. It puts everything into focus. It changes everything. Um, And before where I kind of was going through life and, you know, I was fighting, but I really didn't have much hope for myself. Um, Now it's completely different. I'm fighting so much harder and, you know, I want to be here for my kids. So it does. It changes perspective. Well, I don't want to be in the shoes of the FDA or pharma or other researchers who think that they're going to continue to to exclude people in our position and our best shots at being there for our family for years to come uh, because it's unacceptable and, uh, you know, We'll give them a little time. You know, we're we're just starting to get organized and to ask nicely for the, these common sense policies. But if they ignore us, they're going to hear from us. Absolutely, and they should. You know, that's one of the things that we've talked about so many times is the fact that the people who get things done are the ones who are loud and who are not afraid to speak up. And um and that's a scary thing to do, right? There's so many things to be afraid of. But in my experience, it doesn't help to be quiet. It actually makes things worse. Um, the it, oh. the best thing I've done is to be somebody who's vocal about what's going on with me. Oh, totally. Preach. Um, you know, for me, at the start, I, like, really shied away from being public about my status just uh, because I was so worried about discrimination. But I've, you know, accepted it that, you know, if I want to see change come, I, I need to be open in public and, and I don't want to live in fear. So that's why I'm uh, okay with telling the world that, you know, I'm Jean Swiller and I carry the C9 expansion. Um, a little uh, background on me. Uh, this all resonates with me so much because uh, before we had our daughter, I spent 13 years working as a union organizer. (laughs) So (laughs) I had a lot of experience working with uh, actually hospital workers um, to organize and demand uh, what is needed for them. So um, rabble rousing and community building is something that I really like to do. And I think I have some talent for, so I'm really excited to put it to use in, in our communities. Yeah, you'll be really great at doing all of that. 
Dean, I'm really um, appreciative of the fact that you came on and you talked with me and um, shared your story. I, you know, I know that's not always an easy thing to do, but, um, you know, I think it's really important for other disease communities to know what, you know, our other neurodegenerative diseases are going through and that we're facing the same stuff and that we are here for each other. Um, and certainly this will not be the last time you and I talk. I'm sure that we will have plenty of talks from here on out about how we can help each other. But I'm just very grateful for you and um, how vocal you are you, on Twitter. You've been amazing, and um, I'm very grateful for that. Well, thank you so much for giving me the chance to just blabber on a, a bit. And uh, I really look forward to continuing to deepen the ties between the HD and the ALS communities. And um, uh, really look forward to uh, making a difference. Thank you so much. You're so welcome, and thank you. And if anybody is interested in actually learning more about how they can help with um, ALS, you can go to IamALS.org. Um, super cool website. I, like, I love it. I'm, I'm going through it as we talk, and it's just uh, really very well set up. And um, you can get information on there about their advocacy efforts and um, and really get ideas about how we can help each other. Um, so definitely check that out. I also want to bring up that um, the Awareness Month is coming up in May, and so the campaign that Help for HD is going to be doing is called This is HD, and I'm just um, it's called Action for you guys. I really need um, photos. I want photos. Um, of you posing with a family member with the real HD, right? The day that you're having a hard time shaving, the day you're having a hard time uh, with buttons or getting out of bed or whatever it is, I want those moments and put hashtag this is HD in the photo and send it to me at lauren at helpforhd.org. That's H-E-L-P, the number four, hd.org. Um, and we will be sharing those photos in um, in May for HD Awareness Month and really pushing this is HD, this is the real thing, this is what we deal with. Um, I think it's so important that we have these things, especially as we are talking um, in the community with pharma and FDA and researchers and really showing this, the both sides of HD, right? There is a positive just like like these connections that we're making, but there's the real struggles of HD, the IVF struggle, the um, to test or not to test struggle, the genetic discrimination struggles, the, you know, every day for a person with HD struggles. So I want all of it. Send it to me, all like all of your photos, all of your big moments, please send them to me so we can make sure that we are spreading awareness for HD Awareness Month um, this year. Um, and we've got, you know, really good shows lined up, of course, um, for May. Um, but just make sure that you're continuing to listen. Um, we will be giving updates of all kinds. We, we, hinted, we hinted at uh, some really cool things coming up for the HD community that will be announced later. Um, but I'll, I'll save that for a different show. So again, Jean, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, and I'm going to say goodbye and take care until next time.
thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.help4hd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications. 